A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the force. That's right, Whistle. Welcome to episode 105 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your ticket to the EU. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes, Zoom, as well as Stitcher, and right on our own Facebook page at SW Beyond Films. Hey, but enough about how you got here. Let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of the multiverse, Mark Erleman. And with me, like a henchman to every mastermind, the EU guru himself, the Count of Continuity, Mr. Nathan P. Butler. Hello, everyone. Guess you can guess by the henchman mastermind thing what we're going to be covering this time around. That's right. You know, behind every good mastermind is a henchman. How was my henchman Sithmas this year? Uh, you know, it's our first uh, Christmas as a married couple. It's going to be our first New Year's as a married couple. We are hoping the New Year's works out better than the Christmas did. Um, we did get to have some sort of family fun and such. Uh, we had had her dad and brother over to see, or I guess her dad and brother and niece over to spend uh, Thanksgiving with us. And we cooked and everything. So then we went over there this time for Christmas, which is kind of cool. Um, did have a bit of a scare, though. And I got to thank those out there who followed the stuff on the Facebook page and, and have been and sending their prayers and their well wishes and everything. Um, we had another ER visit um, for my wife. Um, I, if, you're, if you followed the stuff back in August, basically what caused that ER visit that wound up racking up the $12,000 plus in medical bills, 8000 of which was one friggin' CAT scan, um, by the way. Uh, be wary of those things, apparently, if you don't have insurance. Um, one of the things that they found as part of that, aside from gallstone type things, was they found a couple of ovarian cysts. Um, most of them have gone away already. She's been doing checkups and that sort of thing, and, and it seemed like they're they're fading. But there was one that burst on her uh, on the Sunday before Christmas and started sending her into shock. Um, we basically – it was a question of either take her to the ER or she dies. And we took her into the ER. She got checked out, but her recovery has been – Kind of a slow process here as far as what she can eat, what she can't eat, um, uh, when she feels you know up to being able to go back to work, when she feels up to being able to drive herself and that sort of thing. So it's made for a a rough break, I guess. Um, but she seems like she's getting better at this point. So hopefully we'll have a nice first New Year's together as a couple, whatever that's supposed to be. Once you're married, I guess that means what? Go to bed at ten o'clock and just pretend that it was New Year's or something. Um, <laughs> but we'll. Um, you know, I mean, it's another one of these things where, you know, you never expect what's coming at you as a curveball, but you just either you either let it drag you down and just be like, oh, why us? Or you just kind of take heart when it starts to get better and just keep moving forward. So at this point, we're just kind of in the, the keep moving forward zone at this point. But uh, but yeah, it's just been it's been a heck of a, a, a medical Saga, which of course you guys already know, except for that that last part. Ironically, if I remember correctly, um, the episode that is still meant to come out before this episode, or I guess the one that just came out as of the time that we're recording this, was like, oh yeah, things are getting better medically. Yeah, yeah, not so much apparently. That changed, um, but yeah, we're getting there. I mean, hopefully by the time we get to the point where we're on the the 
summer break, there won't be any more of this crap left to deal with. Everything will be fine because it is all still the same medical thing. It's not like it's something new. It's just a, a spinoff of the original. And surely that'll be gone by the time we, um, we get a few months down the road still here. Very hopeful, if um, cautious at this point. Cautious optimism. Yeah. Well, karmatically speaking, you should be due for some good good karma here soon, I would say. No kidding. Oh, man. I mean, I, I need to start playing the lottery this summer or something. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Don't forget the little beyonders out there. Now, here at Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time, or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars, and so do we. This episode, we plunge into Dark Horse Comics, Knights of the Old Republic, Volume 4, Days of Hate, Knights of Suffering, by John Jackson Miller. Now, before we get too deep into spoiler territory, we'll give you our quick spoiler-free rundown. Just be sure to jump off at Tarkin's Arrogance. Nathan? All right, let's put this all into context here. Remember, we are working our way towards Vector. The idea being that we want to be able to discuss Vector in some detail, along with what does it do for the characters up to that point. So we're already up to the point where Dark Times, we're done with the first two story arcs, Vector's the next one. With Re Rebellion, I believe we still have to check out Small Victories, and then we're at Vector. This episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films is going to get us to where we need to be for Knights of the Old Republic so that Vector is the next story arc in it. And we have, I believe it's two trade paperbacks worth of legacy to go at this point. So by the time we get, you know, a month, two months down the line here, we'll start finally being able to really dig into Vector. Uh, in this case, what we're dealing with is the back half of the Days Nights stuff. Remember, it's Days, D-A-Y-S of Fear, Nights of Anger, N-I-G-H-T-S, and now we have Days, D-A-Z-E, of Hate, and then Nights with a K of Suffering, of the whole fear leads to anger, anger leads to hate, hate leads to suffering concept here of these four three-issue story arcs that make one bigger 12-issue arc, essentially. Um, this is a story at this point taking place 3,963 years before the Battle of Yavin, which does also mean seven years prior to the events of the original Knights of the Old Republic video game, in which you play, of course, as Revan as he's recovering his memories and all that kind of stuff. So it's interesting here that this is the story that answers really two questions. One, how close are we going to get in terms of tie-ins between this series and those games? There's a lot of tie-ins, at least in Knights of Suffering, the back half of what we're looking at this time, that I thought were pretty cool. I remember at the time being excited to see characters like uh, Bredjik, Mission Vow, to return to Terrace and that sort of thing. Carthonassi coming back, who, of course, we saw in the previous arc. You know, it's nice to see those tie-ins here while still servicing the story of Zane Carrick and his story arc, as opposed to it being stuff where it's, you know, the, the stuff that you're seeing as your main characters get supplanted just by a whole bunch of, see, see, we played the game too kind of stuff. Um, although I will say that if there was a, a ponder to go along with this, something to, to consider, I would say that I was actually kind of surprised that this story, at least the first half of it, brings up an interesting question that I had never thought of before. Um, the first half of this is, has art by Bong Dezo, the back half has Dustin Weaver, although the trade paperback incorrectly says Bong Dezo did the art for all of it. And Bong Dezo's artwork brings up the interesting question of, what if you had a Star Wars story in which all the characters' faces were made of mashed potatoes? It's just one of those questions. I've never considered it before, 
But every character's face, except Jeriel's really, except the females, they look like they're basically made up of mashed potatoes. And depending on their expression, they just kind of blob out in different sorts of ways. Um, is it possible to have a more blob-based artwork in a Star Wars story? And I know that we spend a lot of time sometimes talking about artwork, but in comics, that certainly is a big part of serving or not serving the story. Fortunately, in this case, the story is strong enough to overcome the art in the first arc of this, because seriously, there are times I'm looking at this, and I'm like, what are you even doing? Especially, there's a point where um, a squint, Alec, shows up, the man who will eventually be Malik, and they're like, like, uh, oh, you're doing much better. And he mentions how, uh, uh, well, where is it? Uh, having a decent doctor helped. The hair's not coming back, though. And I'm looking at it going, you've got hair! Yeah, I thought the same thing. I'm like, but what about all that fuzz on the top of There's your head? Just, what do you call it? I don't know. There, there are elements of this where the art doesn't service it. It's not that the art detracts from the storytelling, per se. Um, it's not that it's hard to follow, necessarily, but certainly I am very glad when we finally get to the back half of this and we get Dustin Weaver's art back. There will be a few times where I'll mention that specifically as we go along, but I guess that's not something to really, you know, once you say that everybody looks like they're made of mashed potatoes, I'm not entirely sure that there's anything left to say. You expect Weird Al to be sitting there carving the faces out of mashed potatoes and say, this means something, for those of you who are fans of uh, UHF. Um, broadly speaking, though, I actually think this is a, um, it, it's a good conclusion to a weird story. It's the story of the whole uh, Lord Adaska of Adascorp, the Arcanian, trying to leverage the control of the Exogorths, or the Exorgorths, or the Exogoths, depending on which issue you're looking at and how they're spelling it. Um, it's a question of, you know, can he use the space slugs, basically, as leverage to basically gain power for himself in the midst of this conflict between the Republic and the Mandalorians? And as that wraps up within the first three issues, the uh, Days of Hate, it launches us into a mission back to Terrace that will finally move things along again in Zane's own story arc in dealing with the Jedi Covenant, uh, which at this point I don't think we even know the name Jedi Covenant yet, um, but will finally give him a crucial piece of information to upset him on the path that he'll be on through Vector and on into Exalted and Vindication and so forth. So it really sort of feels like we are... If if Star Wars is storytelling usually in three different uh, stages, three episodes, there's you know the first act where we set things up, the second act that brings them to a dark point, but then kicks them off towards the third, in which that's when they sort of pick things up. I would say that this is the arc that's a transition between that second and third act. It looks like things are going to get better for Zane in the sense that he has some new information, and it's full speed ahead from here. You take that, add in the cool cameos and such, and the tie-ins to characters from the game, and you have what is basically a particularly strong uh, arc here. Although I would say that certainly the last three issues are the strongest of this entire 12-issue maxi story with the day's night stuff. I, I really have to admit, you know, I, I, I found when I go through this series that I go back and forth as to what is my favorite artist style. You know, I used to say, I thought it was Ching, but Dustin Weaver, when we get to his stuff really nails it. Uh, Bong stuff. Like you, you mentioned the mashed potatoes. The, the one part of, of his stuff that really threw me off the most was Mandalore's mask, because you kind of almost get the feeling like it's organic. It's like the way the visor kind of moves with his emotions. One minute, it looks like Boba Fett's, then it's kind of doing this frown. And you're like, wait, what? But it wasn't enough to stop it for me. I really actually enjoyed this. This is one of the, you know, pinnacle KOTOR stories here. You know, it, things are really heating up. I think the first half of this, for me, it, it serves more as 
a departure point for a certain character. I mean, one of the characters that we've come to know in the series is going to be leaving from this point on. We're not going to see them back. I don't recall if they ever come back from this. Uh, but at this point, you know, it, it serves as to where they went, why they went the way they did, and how it also impacts the rest of the group as they react to the loss of that person. Um, and, and I think for what that does, it does a good job as it sets up into, you know, nights of suffering nights of suffering by far is my favorite of all of these uh of the whole nights leads to anger anger leads to suffering all that stuff it, i don't know it had the most impact for me for zane's character and and what was going on with that but this one the, the volume four i i think i think this is probably one of if you get this one in volume three it's probably the best of the kotor story arcs out there uh at least for impact and stuff like that and i love the fact that you can go back and with like demigal's character and the things that are going on with him right now you know there are moments where you're like does mandalore know about demigal does he know about roland because they talk about it and you kind of get the feeling that even even mandalore is kind of not knowing who's inside which mask and and the way it's played off is just brilliant i mean again it gets back to what john jackson miller does well and that's good storytelling this is an era in the eu that that i love because it like legacy the first volume they started a new era and they had a small cast and they stuck with it. They really fleshed out the story, not just for these characters, but also for the era as it's going on. I mean, you know, we're slowly getting closer to what's going on in KOTOR, the, the video game. And you're starting to, again, recognize more of these locations, more of these events, more of these names, characters that are showing up as background characters, things like that. And that plays well with the KOTOR one. But overall in the EU, it's nice when they have series like this where they, they commit to it. And they don't just go one arc at a time. They have a bigger plan and they were actually able to execute it. You know, we got new series and stuff coming out all the time and it's just like, they're really good, but they don't last very long. And and that's one of the great things about this one is that it was, a, it was allowed to last long enough to tell the story that they were trying to tell. And I think hands down, that makes this story, the overall KOTOR, you know, comic series, it makes it one of the strongest stories out there in the Star Wars expanded universe. So if you've never had a chance to read this, you're in for a treat. And if you have, you're going to have a fun time going back over it and pondering things that you may or may not have thought of before. And let me say, uh, when it comes to, uh, again, kind of swiveling back here to the art just briefly, you mentioned something there that's a pet peeve, and I noticed something in the first issue that's kind of a pet peeve. Uh, one, again, talking about the – I'm wondering if the colorist in this case, uh, which is Michael Atea, um, whether there was some miscommunication because you got the whole hair thing that we're going to wind up seeing – uh, with Alec, but also there's the I required you to take a new suit of armor where they give Mandalorian armor to Roland that he's supposed to wear. When they give it to him, it's yellow, gold. Every other time we see it in the story, it's red, including when it's worn uh, going into the second arc here. But you mentioned Mandalore's helmet. And that just, that drives me crazy looking at this. Unless it is meant to be organic and it's somehow or, or it's somehow set up so that it changes with his expression. It's kind of like C-3PO. You can somehow change the way that he looks. And it almost looks like he has expressions even though he doesn't and such when it's in artwork as opposed to being an actual costume. But I mean, Mandalore's mask, there is absolutely no consistency with the look of this mask. Sometimes, I put it this way, there's basically what you got. It's kind of like a Boba Fett thing. You have a vertical line going down the mask from basically nose level, eye level, down to his chin, and you have another piece that is horizontal that goes across his eyes. But sometimes the horizontal part looks like a triangle pointing downward, 
Sometimes it looks like a triangle pointing upward. Sometimes it's a V pointing downward. Sometimes it's a V pointing upward. There is absolutely no consistency. And we're not, not even talking consistency between issues. I'm talking between panels on the same page. It doesn't yeah. look right. On the third, or excuse me, the second page of the second issue of this arc, you go from it looking like an upside-down V-type thing on the top panel, like he's sad-looking, to the next panel where he's holding this massive uh, axe that makes no sense whatsoever in terms of weight, because uh, there's no balance on the other end of the handle. Um, and there it looks almost like sort of a downward-pointing triangle, and then it looks like it's sideways in the next shot. It, it just boggles the mind how little consistency there is in here. That was one of the things that drove me nuts about some of the artwork early on in um, what we saw with Dark Times. So just bear this in mind. We'll only point this out when it really affects the way the storytelling works, hopefully, because it's easy to get bogged down in something like this. But there is something to be said for consistency in art. When we talk about continuity, continuity doesn't have to be between stories and in a broader universe. Continuity can be story points in the same story, and in some cases, continuity does mean artwork being consistent. Is the character wearing the same thing in this shot as he is in the next shot that's supposed to take place like two seconds later? That sort of thing. That is continuity, a different type. But it's still a continuity thing, and it's just one of those things that if you... Uh, if continuity is your thing, a lot of times art will wind up playing a role in that within the comics. So it's I'm so glad that Weaver picked up the last arc of this, especially given some of the events that happened in those last three issues. I That's when I would be afraid that, that Bong Dezo's art would have bogged it down too much. Well, it makes you ponder about how you know they go about creating the panels, because you get the sense that some of these may have been done you know, like even a year or two before the others, you know, like there was some time between these panels that they forgot about it or they didn't know which order the panels were going to go in. It's just kind of getting real creative. I don't know. There, there's definitely some, some aspects to it that make you stop and think about it. But the other side of it is I've got the trade and I believe you're looking at the singles. Uh, Cause when they hand Roland the armor in mine, it's still red, but they did have the name like you addressed earlier on the second half, it, it said it was Bongo doing the pencils. And, and that's always something that's always interests me is, you know, sometimes you'll see artists, you know, art by, and then sometimes you'll see pencils, inks, colors. And I don't understand how that process works. I mean, when someone else is doing the pencils and someone's doing the inks and someone's doing the colors is, is all that what makes up when one person does the art? I mean, because sometimes, you know, you'll follow one artist and you're like, okay, what's going on? But when I was looking at this and, and me and you were talking about it before we started recording, because I was just like, what happened with Bong here? Did he start smoking one in the first one and, and got sober in the other one? Because they talk about how he did the pencils and it's like, it's like, man, the art is so significantly different. But then you pointed out that that was a, a error in the trade. Mm -hmm. But it's it's funny how, you know, they fix the color of the one and then they make that little mess up as well. But when it comes to those things, what does the penciler do and the colorist well, do and that kind of stuff? That I that I can illuminate a little bit. Um, the, the way that it tends to work, or the way that it used to work, was that the penciler did, in most cases, essentially they're the ones doing the original breakdowns. They're the ones doing the setup for what the artwork is going to look like, but it's all, as it as the name implies, it's all in pencil. In some cases, that is very defined lines. In some cases, it's not. It depends on the artist. The inker comes in, and the inker essentially goes over it, gives it more definition, essentially. Uh, and de again, depends on the artist. Sometimes they're adding a lot of definition. They're doing some of the shading and such. Sometimes the pencilers already kind of set that up. But they're the ones who give it sort of that finished feel to it. And then generally you come in, and the color will then come in, and 
they add the coloring, of course. And then once that artwork is done, you have essentially your black and white art, then you got your color art. And the way that Dark Horse did it, at least when I worked on the Star Wars Tales story, was you had sort of uh, – you had a digital angle to all of this. So sometimes you might have an artist who, instead of doing pencils and inks separately, they'll just do all of it and they'll do it uh, digitally or they'll do it and scan it in digitally. And what I found was that you got your black and white page, and at the same time that the colorist is adding color to that black and white page, somebody else is figuring out where the letter balloons are going to go and marking those off, and then eventually adding in the letter balloons with the lettering into them, which is what Michael Heisler did for these issues. Uh, Heisler and Atea are also the ones that did the Tales comic that I did. Um, until eventually, uh, think of those kind of as, as uh, layers in Photoshop where you get your original layer, the color layer that's gone over it, and now they're going to add in a layer of the, uh, uh, the, whatchamacallit, the, the word balloons, the dialogue balloons, along with the lettering to go with it. So it, these days the lines are kind of blurred, because depending on who the artist is, they may do the coloring themselves, they may do uh, pencils and inks, they may do everything digitally where you don't need pencils and inks. Um, you can just kind of have the one line because they can go back and change their own art as they go digitally. Um, it, it's a blurred line, but generally the person whose uh, choices and, and style is most reflected in comic book art is the penciler, um, unless the colors are just way, you know, over the top kind of crazy. Uh, and generally there'll be references that the colorist can work from when putting together the colors. So that's why I'm kind of sitting there wondering about uh, the whole issue of the armor. But that's why you could change something like the armor more easily is because it is oftentimes a digital process now. Oh, the armor's the wrong color. It's yellow here instead of red. I'll go in Photoshop or whatever, and I'll change the color to red in the same digital process it would have used to make the issues. That's the same thing like they did with uh, where uh, – remember Cade steps in to see yeah, Delilah, Delilah Blue. and it, it's her facial and her, her hair coloring is wrong, so it makes it look like he's checking in on Mara CFL and all that. Um, same kind of deal here. Um, so I guess we should move into the uh, spoiler part then. We've analyzed their attack, sir, and there are spoilers. Should I have your ship standing by? Evacuate? In our moment of triumph? I think you overestimate their chances. Consider that your spoiler warning, Beyonders and Sentience of All Ages, because here we go. Right, less of a an issue-by-issue issue, uh, take this time, or at least less of a scene-by-scene scene take. We start out with issue number 19 of Knights of the Old Republic. At this point, we're picking up right where the last one left off. Uh, Lord Adaska of Adascorp wants to sell the Exogorth technology. He's got these huge space slugs that can eat through just about anything. They're attaching hyperdrive controls onto them so that just like they kind of go through space, they're able to bring them through hyperspace so that they can then munch on whatever the target planet is. And he's planning on basically selling it to the highest bidder or to whoever makes him the best offer that may not actually be money. We pick up with the arrival of Admiral Saw Carith, who has Morbus with him. We'll see more of Morbus all the way up through Knights of the Old Republic War. And Karth Onassi is with them. And of course, as we saw in the previous arc, Zane Carrick is still their prisoner. So it's Karth and Carith, different characters here, and Morbus and Zane all showing up aboard the Arcanian Legacy. Aboard the Arcanian Legacy, Adaska still has Jeriel as his prisoner because it was Gorman Vandrake, a.k.a. Camper, who was the guy doing the original research on the Exogorse, on the Space Slugs, and to get him to finish his work from years ago, 
Um, Adaska is using Jeriel essentially as leverage, as a hostage, in a sense here. So they're arriving, which is finally going to bring Zane back into contact with Jeriel. But again, he's still technically a prisoner, but it gives her hope that maybe they could get the heck out of there. We see the arrival of another faction in this issue. This issue is a lot of arrivals and talking. We see the arrival of uh, someone from the Revanchist or Revan's faction, constantly referring to Revan as my master or the Revanchist because they don't want to reveal any kind of name from before he was Revan. Um, and arriving here, it is Squint, Alex Guargesimus, who we met back in issue number zero, Crossroads, uh, who we saw back in the Flashpoint arc. He's here. Remember, Roland is already there, supposedly keeping an eye on Jeriel, which brings them back into contact. Remember, Roland was supposed to have left Flashpoint with Alex's ship, but instead stowed away aboard the Last Resort and then popped out at just the right moment to save Camper from the HK droid. And then we have another new arrival, unexpectedly here, which turns out to be Lucian, not necessarily representing the Jedi Order so much as the Jedi Covenant, which again doesn't have that name just yet. He's an old friend of Adaska's, and so that he can't ruin Adaska's operations, Adaska drugs him, knocks him out, takes his lightsaber. And as we are nearing the end of the first issue, we have the arrival of the last of the major factions here, Mandalore, the actual Mandalore, leader of all the Mandalorian armies, who is there to also make his own offer, which of course, you know, causes issues for the Republic faction there and the Revanchist faction there because they want to take him out. But of course, you can't take out Mandalore because if you do that, you could wind up escalating the war even further than it already is. We end the first issue then with the unusual situation of several HK-24 droids all guarding two prisoners who are tied back to back. Those prisoners being Lucian Dre and his former Padawan, Zane Carrick. Um, I like the way this ends, but yeah, this is definitely an issue that's very much about bringing the characters together. Uh, it is funny, though, at one point, or if it's this issue or the next one, when uh, the little Duros uh, Lobot type uh, individual there, E.G., I think is his name, um, basically like, wow, who would have known that having an Arcanian offshoot meeting Jerio would have been so good for diplomacy? It's like she knows everybody. It's... It's one of those classic Star Wars things. The characters have all gone off on their own missions, but circumstances, or the Force, have brought them back together where they need to be. And that's one of the things that I've always thought is sort of a hallmark of Star Wars. And here's Miller using it to draw not only story threads together in this multi-arc, maxi-arc, but also drawing the characters back together after we thought they were going their separate ways. All that we need now is, is Griffin Slisk, who we'll see soon. Yeah, and there's a moment there when uh, Jarrell first meets up with Zane, and she gives him the kiss. And the artwork is played well, as well as not served well here. The uh, EG character just looks really cartoony with the way he's looking, but he does deliver, well, you wanted her to greet our guests. But it's Jarrell's character. Like, when you look at the first panel when she's kissing Zane, her lip, her blue lip is over his. And then in the next one, as they're kind of dropping out of the frame, you see that she's already starting to move towards his ear with her mouth. And then, of course, you know, the next one, it's just her hair. They've moved off frame. And then you turn the page and it gets to where she's actually telling Zane that Jarrell, or that Jarrell's being a, a prisoner and that Camper is being held hostage or vice versa, that she's being held hostage and Camper's a prisoner and has to do this stuff. But basically save him. And I like the way that the art there, you know, it's very subtle, but but they did a good job in that regard. I mean, granted, there were little things that, that kind of threw me off, but 
I, at this point, I'm willing to overlook it because the story had so much going on at this point. I mean, Lord Adaska has gone from being just this guy that you were like, okay, what's with him? To, okay, he's shady. To, whoa, he's straight up villainous. I mean, at this point, I, I love what he says. Uh, he goes, he's like, we no longer seek contracts, but we may accept allies. And then even later, he talks about, you know, well, we're not going to, I'm not going to sell you this. I'm going to keep control. So basically, you're paying me tribute. And I, I don't know. I mean, it was like all of a sudden, like, this guy flipped off the beam and went totally bad. And I, I like the way that it went because now you have this aspect between Camper and him because Camper knows him and he's like knows his grandfather and his father and all that. Uh, and, and Camper's another one of those characters that this, you know, Bong didn't really do the best job serving him because his face goes from looking really wrinkled to not so wrinkled to, you know, back and forth. But this is kind of more Camper's story. You know, I mean, this is he's the character that we're going to watch settle off and do his own thing, which doesn't quite line up with one of the covers, which we'll get to when we cover covers. But I like the fact that they put Zane with Lucian tied together. And he's like, where am I? Nowhere good. Nowhere good. <laughs> I thought it was an interesting twist because we've been waiting for these kind of confrontations. But throughout this one trade paperback, we're going to notice Zane get put in positions with these Jedi masters more than once. And he has to work with them. And I, I find it interesting the way that those scenes play out. Yeah, again, this is a lot of setup, but it is some payoff. Remember back in the previous arc, there was a whole thing where in comes Adaska, and he makes a deal with Roland, who we, at this point, don't realize is Demigol, um, but makes that deal essentially saying, hey, um, I need you to contact Mandalore for me. In return, you can have Jeriel, but... I need you to contact Mandalore. But he doesn't say Mandalore. He just says he wants you to contact someone and shows him some things. And they're leaving the question of what was it that he was shown? Who is he supposed to contact? That's the payoff here. He's the one who brought in Mandalore. And you're like, wait a second. What's the deal with him? Why is he doing this? Remember, this is Demigol in disguise. And we don't realize that at this point. But so much of this makes so much sense when you go back and reread it after that big reveal that we got much, much later in the series. Um... Uh, the whole speaking of which, how fares Demigol? asks Roland, who's actually Demigol. Uh, it was odd, says Alec. The night we left, he fell into a coma. Demigol did it! And we haven't been able to rouse him since. Uh, he was tranked up with enough to, sedative to drop a gun dart. We think he did it to himself while he was still in his lab, right? Whenever Demigol came in and drugged him up and that sort of thing. Uh, he could have. He would have. He would not have wanted to reveal anything. You remember the trouble he had walking. I would not try too hard to preserve his life, right? Just let Roland, who's looking like Demigol now, in custody, die. Nice way to cover himself. Um, it's cool to see that the, the whole inner working thing of what's going on with Demigol, who we'll learn so much more about in the back half of this entire series, is neat to see him in action here and not really realize that when we were reading this at the time that we were seeing what we were seeing. That's always something I find fascinating going back and looking through early issues uh, of Knights of the Old Republic. I will say, though... When it comes to this, I love that line, as you said, the whole thing about, you know, we may accept allies. That was a great moment. It sort of turns Lord Adaska into a Bond villain, one of the good yeah. Bond villains in that sense. But I know we're going to talk about covers later, but can we say one thing about the cover of issue number 19? If there's supposed to be a surprise inside this issue when it turns out oh, Mandalorians are here, it's Mandalore, what? They give it away because the entire cover is Mandalore standing there in front of everyone saying, your war is lost. 
with this weapon, the Mandalorians will rule the galaxy, and Kara's saying, don't count on it, we'll die before we kneel to you. Although it's kind of hard to follow it, given the fact that some of it's in black, some of the words are in red, some of them are in bright, freaking bluish purple. It's, it's, it's an odd way they set up the dialogue on the cover, because it is one of those covers where the dialogue uh, gives you a sense of what's in the story, and I think that actually works fairly well for these six issues. But they blew their own surprise in the cover of the issue. It's exactly like whichever it was, whichever uh, book it was in Fate of the Jedi that gave away what was going to happen to Natasi Dawa by saying it on the book cover as if it was in the past when it was an event that was going to happen halfway through the book. Um, in that sense here, I think it would have been nice to maybe have that still be a surprise. I don't know if it would have been a huge surprise, because every other faction's already showing up, and we had just seen the whole thing of, hey, we want you to contact somebody, Roland. But if it was meant to be a surprise at all, the cover blew it for the issue, which really stinks. I, it would have been nice to have that, that surprise actually be a surprise when reading it. Yeah, and uh, the other one that they bring up is that the lab had Jarrell's blood work come back, you know, and they, and they mention, you know, there's something important about the sample and things like that. But in this issue, this trade, they never actually explain that. That's also revealed later. But refresh my memory. Is this is this just the aspect that she has forced potential? Well, remember, there was that whole thing where Demigol, back before he was known as Demigol, had done all those experiments and such. And this is, is recognizing that she isn't just a regular offshoot. She was part of that, from what I understand. But it's something that is given more detail in that secret journal or secret diary, whatever it's called, of Dr. Demigol, the little thing that was put online that gives you those little references throughout, um, and something that we'll see play out after Vindication is over in this series. So it's something we'll get into eventually if we get to that point looking at the series as in, as a whole. Um, but at this point, all we know is that there's something unusual about her, though we don't know what it is yet. And it's it's happening. There's such there's a brief little mentions in something where you've got a story that's so big going on around it that I think it's easy for those to get missed. That's what I mean by it being kind of interesting to read this, knowing what comes later. Yeah, and I loved also the fact that you know Lord Adaska mentions that he's the one that bought the entire line of HK24s, and of course they have a little HK humor there with the HKs all mocking each other, talking about how the line should have been stopped after me. <laughs> you gotta love that little stuff. Now that brings us into issue number 20. Uh, at this point, Mandalore is already there. Alec intends to try to attack him, but it's not gonna work. You know, Adaska wants to maintain essentially a brief truce or whatever you want to call it there so they can all hear his business proposition. We learn that uh, Camper is out on the control station, the command platform, um, to do the test with the Exogorts, kind of a display of their abilities and such, so everybody can see how dangerous they could be, which moves us into a brief encounter between Roland, who has, of course, uh, shown up on the scene as of the last issue, walking in on the meeting and everything, um, Roland and Mandalore. And Mandalore reveals essentially that Roland has become, or Demigol in this case, has become sort of a, uh, a cult figure almost within Mandalorian society. Essentially that he became Roland the Questioner, the one who sought his own way instead of following Mandalore's instructions back on Flashpoint in terms of the direction he sees the Neo-Crusaders going and all. Mandalore reveals that it was Cassus Fett, yeah, Fett, Cassus Fett, who was the one who basically figured that, okay, as, as much as the Mandalorians are growing with so many new recruits, so many different species, different languages, different armor, what they need is a sort of uniformity. The whole idea of the Neo-Crusader armor and essentially to, to find a way to not really brainwash people, but to get them to follow Mandalore as the single uh, point of control. The Mandalorians have always been a group 
without a lot of logistical control, without a lot of structure to them, because they were nomadic, because they were a warrior culture where everyone sort of had their own uh, roles to play in their own lives as opposed to the bigger structure all the time. And now they're basically an army and a big force in the galaxy. They need that structure. So here is Cassus Fett bringing that control, you know, control, not a very Mandalorian concept, but that Roland, by being the questioner, has become a unifying force because Mandalore essentially has said that, that he's dead and written actually a dying speech, a fake dying speech for the end of Roland, in which Roland the Questioner basically says that the only way to go forward, the only way victory can be achieved, is to follow unquestioningly the word of Mandalore. Essentially, he's the one who questioned only to find that questioning was not right. And in that, that's a way of basically suggesting to the other Mandalorians that Mandalore essentially is always right. Um, I thought that was kind of an interesting way of using the character and his background there. I, I love the fact that it did that quick tie into what was going on with the Neo Crusader armor, because that's something that has always interests me, you know, what was going on with the Mandalorians at this time frame. In fact, rereading this, it got me really excited for the new movies as they come out. I, I would love to see Mandalorians come back as a resurgent order of some form. They could, though. Goodness knows what they're actually going to look like. Um, you know, this is, you know, a, this is not your papa Star Trek. Or Star Trek. I was thinking of J.J. Abrams doing an Into Darkness and everything. For all we know, <laughs> for all we know, we could see the Mandalorians come back. Uh, we see Jango Fett or Boba Fett come back, only to wind up not being the same race that he was in the first place, given uh, Into Darkness. <coughs> anyway, um, so we wind up finding that Camper has the ability to contact Jeriel through her little bracelet, her little locator bracelet that's being used to keep tabs on her and such. Um... So she now knows where he is. Of course, Adaska figures this out fairly quickly, so it's not like it's going to you know, do a whole lot of good. He just uses it to continue uh, threatening Jeriel as he goes along. And while that commotion is happening back in the command center, or whatever you want to call it, uh, the, the observatory, the command center is the platform where Camper is, um, we get to see what's going on with Zane and his mashed potato-faced master, Lucian. And, oh, oh, and... Uh, talk about mashed potato face. I mean, check out if if you've got these issues, go to the, go to the second part of the story where you see the second issue, basically issue number twenty, where you see them tied back to back again. Then turn two pages beyond that and look at the bottom where Zane is getting angry and says, "Okay, I know why I'm locked in here. What does Lord Adaska have against you?" That ain't Zane. That is some kind of creepy Nosferatu uber mashed potato based creature it that's that's cole skywalker dude <laughs> it, oh it's it uh it, it just it absolutely doesn't make any sense. it's like as he gets angry his face goes clay face from batman or something how exactly does that work he's mad I mean, he's smiling like the clown prince of crime it just it's one of those instances where it's like how did that get past quality control on the artwork to actually make it into the issue. Again, it's one of those things we hit if it stands out like crazy, and that absolutely does. The good news, of course, is that, as one would probably expect, these two, at least briefly, are going to have to find a way to work together to be able to escape. Uh, they escape the HK-24 droids, only for Lucian to pull his lightsaber and try to take out Zane. Because remember, the Jedi Covenant believes that 
the five, as we will find out as we go along, that may, that they originally thought were their Padawans, are going to be the ones that are the catalyst for bringing the Sith back in one way or another, either by becoming Sith or otherwise, and Zane's the only one left. So his mission still is to take out Zane. It's not just to capture him, it's to take out Zane. So he pulls his lightsaber on Zane. Fortunately, Zane has those Vam braces, those uh, uh, sort of uh, gauntlet-type things that he got back in the previous arc that he's able to block the lightsaber blade with at least briefly um, to kind of hold off their battle for another day. We then wrap up the issue with uh, essentially the bargaining that's going on between the different sides. Um, basically at this point Mandalore makes an offer that's really kind of hard to refuse. Essentially, look, the Republic's different companies are going to all be devastated by the fact that Mandalore thinks that the Mandalorians are going to conquer the entire Republic. There won't be anything left for them. But if you let us control this technology, these space slugs, we'll make you the exclusive armor of the Mandalorians. You will be the company left standing, and that's it. Lord Adasco, weaponsmith to all the clans, which of course makes any offers that the Revanches can make or that the Republic can make look pretty petty in comparison. Uh, all that remains in that issue then, after that sort of moment of, uh-oh, it looks like the Mandalorians are going to get this technology, is a brief scene that at the time, I'm not sure that we all really kind of took it for what it meant. It was one of those scenes that left you kind of scratching your head that you were thinking, there's got to be more to this coming up in the rest of this arc, but it really didn't. And that is that uh, E.G., the little helper dude, has gone off to see what's up with the results of that blood test that Mark mentioned. And this is where he realizes, no wonder his lordship took such an interest in her, etc., etc. You know, the revelation that, uh-oh, Jeriel's not what she seems to be, which we won't find out in detail until the end of this entire series. But someone steps in, you know, what are you doing here? Protecting the truth. Knowledge is only for the worthy, and this knowledge is only for me. And he blasts the scientists, and blasts Eiji to keep the secret of Jeriel's background. Now, I hadn't noticed, I guess, at the time, that back at the time where they said, you know, the blood tests are in and then Eiji went off, that was the same time in which Roland, Demigol, says essentially, yeah, yeah, I guess I'll go put on this new armor, supposedly, and finds a way to slip out at the same time. I think I would have caught that initially if I realized that that was going to be such a big story point later. But again, it's one of those cool little layered things where it's blink and you'll miss it, only to realize later it plays a bigger role. Again, it's kind of like the Babylon 5 thing. We always make this comparison. Who would have guessed that the little healing device that takes some of your life energy and gives it to someone else back in Season 1 of Babylon 5 would have such a huge impact at the end of Season 4? You know, it's just planted in there to be used much later on in the storytelling. Again, it's the, the John Jackson Miller, J. Michael Straczynski parallel that we often draw. Um... It made for an interesting end to the issue, but it didn't pay off any time in the near future, so it was easily forgotten. Yeah, and another twist was, again, going back to Camper. I mean, when Camper's talking to Jarrell, you know, he talks about things being his fault. And he goes, they're up to no good. All those diseases in the offshoot areas, Ascorp released them there. And, and Jarrell's like, what? The company designed them, Jarrell? Edask's grandpa, an old man, wanted to put the offshoots down, drive them out of Arcanian society. Why? Why would they do such a thing? And at this point, Lord Adaska comes up and grabs her by the, you know, by the hands and throat, taking the uh, remote from her because you can't trust an offshoot. And this is when you realize, you know, the the depths of his evil. I mean, like they were in the last ones, it was kind of coming forward, but now it's just blatantly in your face. And then he uses words like, you know, you're going to pay a tribute to me and such. 
But when we get to Lucian attacking Zane, I love the fact that, you know, Zane, he's kind of like a smart aleck when he, you know, he's Lucian's like, what's this? And he's like, Frank Ray Van Braces, a gift from a friend, you know, friends, people you trust. And Lucian's like, you know, I had to try. And Zane's response is, I'm not afraid of you anymore. And it's really bold. Like, you know, he's saying it with conviction. And Lucian goes, I know. That's why we're afraid of you. And he goes, we'll take this up after we sort out Adaska and throws him the weapon. But this is one of the two times where Zane now finds himself knowing these people are trying to kill him and yet having to work with him. And he's always willing to kind of just set things aside for the moment. And I don't know, like part of me just feels like this is so very sitcom-y of Zane's character, yet it works. You know, it's like here he is, he's in this, this impossible situation and he has to make do with it. And yet he can't trust the people around him. And yet he has to, he has no one else to trust. It's like Zane's luck just keeps throwing him into these positions. And I love that. And, that, and but that's the whole thing with Zane, right? I mean, Zane, and, and it's great because it's one of those things, but the conceit in star Wars often is, wow, that was a coincidence, but it can always be written off as no, it wasn't coincidence. It was the will of the force, right? Well, with Zane, the whole idea was essentially that he is strong in the force, but the force works in a different way with him. It's almost like he has dumb, bumbling luck and that always gives him what he needs or puts him where he needs to be even if it's not what he thinks you know he doesn't sense that he's supposed to be there just kind of happens um and i will say that uh, that that seems to work well here i mean i don't know if it's intended that way or if it's meant to be sort of the sitcom coincidence of course um and maybe it is but you can write that off now with Zane because, oh, wow, that sounds like a coincidence. That couldn't have been the will of the force. That was just too sitcom-y. No, it's, that's just Zane's dumb luck. It's, it's a different twist on that same sort of ghost in the machine type of concept here. Uh, and I will say one other thing before we move on to, to the next issue. Um, there's, a, there's a quick little comment in here, and I didn't really – I guess I didn't really make as much of it at the time when I first read it, but it's something that stood out to me this time. There's uh, as they're still tied up. Zane says, you know, their visions talking about the seers uh, ruined my life and made you a murderer. I'm not a big fan of their work as well. I never have visions myself, but I respect their word and their warnings. When you have a terrible vision that comes through or that comes true, you'll see. And all we get is just a very slight, you know, much smaller print. So meant to be sort of whispered, maybe from Zane. But remember, that's exactly what just happened at Serico. He had the vision of the destruction of the planet by the Mandalorians, and as far as he knows, as of issue number 20, Griff and Slisk have both died back there. You know, he's got that regret that he had a vision, and it seems as though his buddies may have died in the explosions and everything because they didn't heed the warning. He had a vision that came true. So he's finally put in a position of, of thinking in terms of the way that maybe Lucian would look at the visions of the seers. Lucian doesn't see it himself, but Zane trusted his. Why True. wouldn't Lucian trust those of the people that he has been brought up and raised by his mother? We will eventually find out. I mean, we found out back in um, the little interlude a while back, the Flashpoint interlude and such, but Zane doesn't quite know it yet, um, that, that he was brought up to trust, in a sense. I mean, this was his whole life. So you almost get, I don't want to say sympathy for Lucian, but the more this series goes along, the more it seems that Lucian is, he's the bad guy, or he's a, a bad circumstance. guy. Yeah, he, he's a bad guy who's not meant to be the bad guy. He's a guy who, it, it's it's like anything else. It's like the best of villains, right? The best villains always think they're doing the right thing mm -hmm. uh, or the right things or the wrong things perhaps for the right reasons or vice versa. And yet it's what turns 
a well-meaning character into a villain, in a sense here. And in this case, you know, we, we will eventually find a kind of redemption, I guess, for Lucian, uh, thinking about the way that things will eventually turn out for him. But that brings us to Days of Hate, Part 3, which again is the end of Days of Hate, but still leaves three issues left in this bigger Days Nights arc here. Uh, the argument continues about, you know, who's going to get control of the exogorts of the big old space slugs and such. Uh, Lucian and Zane are joined by Karth Onassi, who has slipped away, uh, believing that he needs Zane's help to kind of settle things up there. And he has brought Zane his lightsaber, which is nice. So now it is Zane and Karth and Lucian. And Lucian thinks the best thing that they're going to do is just go kill Jeriel, because if you kill Jeriel, there'll be no leverage over Camper anymore. Yeah, that's a that's a great that's a great option there, Lucian. Roland slash Demigol shows up, and you really get the sense of how protective he is of Jeriel. And they play this off throughout this arc as if it's like a love thing, like like Roland has a a profound caring for her. You know, he'll protect her to the ends of the earth. You know, to save Jeriel, you have my last breath. When it turns out it's not a love thing. It's not an infatuation thing. It's more, you know, he wants to know what's going on with this former experiment of his. But at this point, all we're getting is sort of the, wow, this guy's really, really dedicated to this woman he barely knows. Um, but it works. It brings Roland into the fray. And basically their plan is to make all hell break loose. Uh, Roland has this armor, which, again, was yellow in the original issue when first given to him. Now it's red. You say it's fixed in the trade paperback, probably in the Omnibus 2, uh, which did just come out, by the way. We got Omnibus 1 and 2 came out in this previous year. And basically, just Zane gets into the red armor. They walk their way into the crowd uh, during the negotiations. Karth walks in, bumps into Zane, makes it look like a Republic individual and a Mandalorian are about to get into a fight. They push each other. Karth gets knocked into a uh, Karath and Morvis. And then Zane goes bumbling into, among others, Roland. So Roland can get into the fray. And as things are going chaotic, here comes Zane whipping at his lightsaber. And my initial thought is, wait a second, why is he doing that? The whole point was to be in disguise, only to realize that's not the plan. The plan isn't just all hell breaks loose. The plan is... Here comes Lucian with his lightsaber, Zane with his lightsaber, Squint, who then jumps in on it with his lightsaber, kind of picking up where they're going, and it makes it look as though the Jedi are there working for Adaska to try to trap Mandalore. And this just, you know, all hell breaks loose. The different <laughs> Republic side factions, um, plus the Mandalorians, they're all getting into this massive, massive battle, uh, taking advantage of this. Camper sets the last resort to launch, leaving LB, the droid, behind, by the way, by accident, um, bringing it over to where he is, where he's managed to take control of the command center, basically lock up the other guys who were in there with him so that he can make sure that, uh, that nobody else gets control of the exogoths but him. Um, and we basically wind up with sort of from there, it's basically just how, are, how is everybody going to get out of this alive? Um, Camper causes the space slugs to slam into the Arcanian legacy. We will find that that will kill um, Arco Adaska, wind up basically wiping out his operation. Um, we have uh, Morvis ordering Karth to bring along Zane, right? Uh, bring Carrick, he's still our prisoner. At which point Karth has his hand on Zane's shoulder and just kind of lets go and goes, whoops, you escaped. And his explanation is, you know, there's too many bad guys right now and you're not one and I don't want to be either. Um, so Zane is finally free of his captivity. Roland and Jeriel 
go try to go to the last resort, wind up finding LB there left behind, and contact Camper, who is basically doing the self-sacrificing heroic thing here. He has control of the space slugs. He needs to take them out and release them where they will be free, essentially, but no danger to anyone. And it's sort of him finding a way to make up for his past, in a sense, here. The hope being that he will someday survive and return, but he basically just leads them off in the command th or in the, the last resort with his command module that he's basically put onto a laptop, looks like a laptop, and just leads them away from everything. But that means the last resort is not there to be their escape vessel. Lucian is willing to take them along on his ship, but only if Zane goes with them, which means Zane going into custody. But at the last moment, uh, we will find alerted by an informant, basically, um, in the next arc, we find out the backstory of it. Here comes the Momo brothers again from that crazy heist arc who have brought with them in their ship, the Moomaw Willowaw, have brought in Slisk, which is the revelation that not only has Slisk survived what happened back on Serico, but so has Griff. In fact, he's running the resistance back on Terrace. And as our heroes escape on the Willowaw, uh, I think it's how you pronounce it, they're escaping. Lucian escapes, but Lucian has heard Terrace? Terrace, eh? So be it. The chase ends where it began, and not only do we now have the lead-in to Knights of Suffering, but we now have things coming full circle back to Terrace, which of course is also a major place in the Knights of the Old Republic video games, setting up all those ties that we're going to see. Um, as chaotic as this issue was, I mean, literally all hell breaking loose over and over again, um, it did make for a nice ending of this, and I was glad to see the space slug thing come to an end in this part of the arc, instead of taking us all the way through to the end of the whole day's nights thing, because it was a little weird and mad scientist-ish. Uh, but a big game-changer of an issue, uh, often forgotten because of how game-changing the next arc yeah. in this whole mess is going to be, but Camper's gone. Well, and it played it so well. I mean, like you said, the game-changing aspect of what Lord Adaska was doing and the fact that every single faction was like, uh, we got to shut this down, you know, because it, it wasn't just that, you know, it was a great weapon. It was, we got these slugs set to go into this place, and as soon as we trigger them, they're going to destroy the planets or moons or whatever and start breeding. And then once they start breeding, well, then the parents will just move them on, and that system will still continue to breed more that aren't under our control. And everyone's like, yeah, but those ones aren't under your control. Like, everyone was realizing that this has got a negative here, you know. Even Mandalore says at one point, you know, what's the point of having these planets if you're leaving them uninhabited? That's not what I'm about. Uh, and then there's a, also, you know, uh, Morvis is talking. He's like, you know, we could create this this broad space of uninhabited worlds, you know, and Karath goes, I hear you, Morvis, but we still got to call home. This is too big. I'm just an admiral blasted. I can't cut a deal like this on my own. And Mandalore goes, there you are. I thought you were going to change into, oh, never mind. As he's talking to Roland, as Roland shows up, which I thought was kind of interesting. You know, he's like, ah, never mind. Like they, they give you just enough for him to just dismiss the fact that he's not changing the outfit. And then of course he turns to Adaskar and he goes, do you hear them, Adaskar? Their politicians will never agree to what I can provide for you. Their authority is split. My power is absolute. And Adaska leads forward and has a very, very, very sinister look. And he goes, who's power, Mandalore? We've been talking price. But if I retain operational control of the Excorus, then we're talking tribute. And, I mean, at that point, you're like, whoa, he just pulled an Emperor Palpatine. Like, dude wants to be the Emperor, man. He wants control of everything. Like, he's talking about putting the Jedi under his control, the Mandalorians, you know. 
and the the way that they play off the fact that everyone hates each other with Zayn and everybody bouncing off each other works so well that you're right. Like so many people probably forget about that how awesome this story conclusion is because the next one is just so much better. Like, and this one is great. I mean, I overlook all the little art weirdness that goes on throughout all of this beginning one because the story is just so good. I, I really enjoy where it takes all these characters, how it wraps up camper's story how the fact that that uh lb the or i believe it's lb the load lifted droid gets left behind and jarella the next issue talks about how he hasn't even really moved much but it gives camper this moment of you know finally he's he's realized everything that's been going on and he's taking the power pack and you know the, the cover for this one you know getting back to coverage real quick it's it's one of those it's really weird because it's got Jarrell in one little bubble as it's got the uh slugs chasing the ship and she goes camper stop if you try to lead the space slugs away from the fleet they'll kill you and if i don't they'll kill us all and it's just like well that's not really what happened but okay like they they do a really funny job of doing that. And I don't know what the word of that style is of those word bubbles, but those word bubbles kind of like give you the sense of dread at like 10 times more than what the comic provides. But this comic still managed to provide a, a story that's set on a galactic scale that all the factions were wanting to shut him down. And I like the fact that even though they all are fighting each other, they're all in agreement that a NASCAR needs to be stopped, that he is just, too kooky for anyone and that's what they're all here they're all here to stop the other faction from getting this weapon and you, there's a moment where malik is even asked about it and he's just like well you know maybe in the jedi's hand we could act with it responsibly after he just got stunned saying you know this is too much for anybody to have we can't do it and i i love that temptation that even though they all recognize it for what it is they all want to as you say do the right thing and yet it's it's like it's like nobody wants the other faction to get it because they're all afraid what they're going to do with it What's a lot like, I mean, there, I guess you could take sort of two different modern parallels. I mean, there's the nuclear technology angle. That's essentially what you've got here, the ultimate weapon. And in the case of, you know, take the Cold War, you know, the U.S. has it. The Soviet Union, now Russia winds up having it. You know, uh, France and Britain and Israel, in theory. Uh, North Korea, China, and so on. It's this idea that there's the, the nuclear proliferation angle. And in this case, it's one of these things, you know, you... The only way to keep the genie from getting out of the bottle is to not let it be used in the first place, essentially. Um, I would say that more it's more like these space loads, though they're kind of almost like a disease. I always see the parallel between this and something like a zombie virus, like we get in a lot of stories, or Ooh. just a deadly disease. Um, I finally started getting into reading uh, Stephen King's stuff recently. I finally kind of swirled back around to it because I tried at one point reading The Stand many years ago and didn't get very far in it, though I liked the miniseries on television. So I went through and I read Salem's Lot, went through and read The Dark Half, and now I'm reading The Stand. And the whole premise of that is the U.S. military was working on a disease, a weaponized virus, and it got out. And there's just no way to stop it. It just goes and goes. You know, why create a weapon that is going to be devastating if it is ever unleashed, that there's no way to control it? With the answer being, well, the enemy's doing it too. Which is not much of an answer at all. You know, it's just, it's that kind of thing. See, the, the the more responsible thing is, oh, this weapon exists. We're gonna make sure that someone responsible controls it, or that no one else gets their hands on it. The problem being that everybody thinks they're the ones responsible enough to control it. Oh, we'd never use such a thing. Surely, surely not. Um, there was a great line, and man, I honestly cannot remember where it was from. I want to believe it's from a Star Wars story, though. The whole, uh, you will not defeat us, you will simply become us line. 
Um, the idea of, of you give enough power to someone and they will eventually wind up becoming that which they despise if they're supposedly good. It's the idea that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely and so on. That was um, kind of the, the internal struggle with the Jedi during New Jedi Order with Luke at one side and, and Kip on the other as to how they should use the Force. Pretty much. That brings us into the second arc, which is, again, sort of very action-packed, but at least in this case, not as many... Um, I think not as many twists and turns. This one feels like it's much more straightforward, I would say. Um, new artwork, of course, by Dustin Weaver coming in, which is a, a welcome surprise at this point. But it's Dustin Weaver with Dan Parsons doing the inks. Uh, we are back on Terrace. The Mumo Willowaw has arrived. And uh, basically, Zane pulls a Star Killer out of the Force Unleashed. He releases himself inside that red Mandalorian armor and just basically nosedives his way down onto the surface. Uh, flipping at the last moment with his jetpack to land, and he's basically trying to find the Resistance to find Griff. Manages to get inside. Uh, he does find the Resistance, who almost shoot him at first because he's wearing Mandalorian armor, and is there that we meet uh, Gadon Thek, we meet Bregic, we meet uh, Zadra, we meet all these different characters, uh, the other Griff, the older brother of Mission Vow, and then young Mission Vow. We meet them all as part of this uh, Hidden Bex group which isn't the organized resistance per se, but Griff is working with them, and the idea is that they want to connect with the more organized resistance that is out there. At this point, we find that Griff is alive. He's carrying around this big old suitcase he's supposed to be delivering as part of a mission to try to find Senator Goravis, which is uh, uh, the terrorist senator, uh, on behalf of a another uh, one of his associates, which they get into a little bit later on. But if I say Griff is there, they're all, of course, working their angles as usual. Everybody's trying to work an angle, uh, essentially, here. Um, we get to see some banter between him, find out, you know, how do they survive and everything. We find out that uh, Griff was actually sent by, again, that associate, uh, Jervo Thalion. We will find that there are connections between him and Garavis. Basically, he runs Loshan Industries, uh, that is, uh, Jervo does, and in basically helping to secure Loshan Industries, uh, a or Losan, I think is how you pronounce it, um, in order to repay the senator, or I guess the senator before he was a senator, for helping set up the industry on Terrace, the repayment essentially was that they helped make sure that Gravis got a Senate seat. So these two have a, a sordid history together. Um, eventually, Gravis wound up, actually, we find out later in the arc, basically caring about the people enough that uh, when... Jervo tried to pull his business off of Terrace. He was really trying to make, you know, trying to use threats to get Jervo to keep the business there, which is part of what sets this all in motion. Um, the big surprise, though, uh, or I guess a couple of big surprises that come up at the end of this issue, though, one is that there is a cloaked Jedi who has the head tails and everything who seems to be working with a young woman. And, of course, given the different art teams that we have at first, we're not quite sure who this woman might be. And we wait. We find a mission taking Zane briefly to go see where it turns out that uh, uh, Bregic has... I mean, we're not quite sure what is going on, but it turns out that basically the, the local constable um, has her, had her children kidnapped. And it turns out that Bridget was the one who kidnapped them to use them as leverage on the constable to make sure that they could get their gang, the swoop gang, the Hidden Becks, into working with the Resistance. Except Gedon, the guy that leads the Hidden Becks, is 
extremely angry about this because this was not the right thing to do, but at least that allows them to use returning the children, claiming that they just found them and saved them as a way to meet with the resistance and get on their good side, as opposed to turning over Zane as a criminal to them, which gets Zane pulled out of the fire here. Supposedly, uh, Griff has made a deal with the senator and with Jervo, uh, if he was able to find the senator for Jervo, that uh, they'll manage to get any charges against Zane and Griff from Terrace and the whole murder of the Padawans, which wasn't really their fault, lifted off of their heads. Of course, that assumes that Jervo was telling the truth when he hired Griff in the first place. But as our two factions here, as the resistance that we haven't really met yet, and the Hidden Becks go to meet with the Resistance to finally start getting this deal going to maybe somehow save Terrace from the Mandalorians, turns out there's a bigger confrontation in the works because that woman, who was mentioned earlier, runs out of the crowd. Turns out that it's Shell. Shad, uh, that is Zane's best friend and fellow Padawan that we saw back in the first arc commencement, his sister, who Zane had had an interest in at one point, a romantic interest in, and it seemed to be vice versa, though it wasn't really going anywhere just yet, she runs out, and instead of it being, Shell, yay, she's here, yay, it's an old friend of mine, she pulls a blaster and shoots Zane. Fortunately, he's carrying that big old case, though we don't know what's in it yet, um, that Griff brought with him as part of his job. It takes the brunt of the attack, part of Zane's dumb luck, as we will wind up finding out, and we end the issue with Shell kneeling over Zane with a blaster to his head, and behind her, the woman who was in the cloak goading her earlier, Rana Tay, the slowly becoming imbalanced Jedi Covenant member, basically ordering her to finish it now. It was a chaotic one with a lot of new characters introduced and a whole lot of crowd scenes where it's easy to get lost in the shuffle of all these different things that are going on in the issue, but it ended with one of the most iconic moments, at least to me, in this entire series. The sister of someone who was killed, believing that Zane was the one who killed him, goaded on by Rana Tay and holding Zane at blaster point. One of the coolest panels in the series and one of the best cliffhangers in the series. Though, of course, we know Zane's not going to die, but it was a great tense moment. Yeah, that panel is glorious. And and that's my thing with this arc is the art all the way around is just stellar. I mean, everything about it is glorious. I could see how if you haven't played KOTOR the video game, how a lot of these characters would be like, whoa, where are they where are they at? Why are they being introduced? Things like that. But as someone who has played it, I love the fact that they were being introduced. I'm like, wait, is that oh my gosh, and that's the hidden Bex, and oh yeah, and that's that one guy. Oh, and there's mission, and, and she's so young, and all all these aspects of it. Uh, I just I I became immediately like, oh man, we're getting so close to that, you know, because you know when you when Kotor one came out, that was the first time you were able to really get into the characters, get into this new seg, uh, set of the uh, universe, get into the new era, and, and explore it and stuff. And you know there are scenes where when 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 Zane's going and looking for the resistance group, he comes across a door and the door lifts up and one of the crabs are there. And I, I love that. That was just like a classic nod to what happened in the game. So often you come up to a door, the door would open. There'd either be a crab droid or something else on the inside. I, I love those little touches to the game. And even the the moment like you mentioned that Griff Val is there and he goes, uh, when they mentioned his name, and Zane turns to Griff and he goes, "Wait, did I just hear Zadara call him Griff?" He's Griffal. I'm the Griff. There can he goes. There's the apprentice. And there's the master. And of course, you know, Griff's out. Val goes. So some master, you nearly got me arrested five times when we were hanging out. That's because you were ignoring my sage advice. And I, I just, 
you know, the, the interactions between these characters are just so much fun and the buildup and, and the fact that, you know, they got all these code names and they even mentioned, you know, that, that Griff gets to do it because he likes the black, the, uh, the commune it so much. Uh, but when they get to later, when they get to that moment where shell shows up, I mean, I, I had that feeling because I remembered what she kind of looked like from the earlier issues. So you had the feeling of what was going on if you were really paying attention. And that's what's so great about the series. Is there's so many things going on. You don't know what you're supposed to be paying attention to and stuff like that. I mean, even when, uh, oh, what's his name? Uh, Bridget, when Bridget comes out and he tries to attack him, you know, when they figure out what was going on with the kids, you know, you're just like, oh, oh, was Bridget? He was a bad guy. Like, and then, you know, the next scene you have that out where you find out that, yeah, he's doing his own thing against Gannon's best wishes and how, you know, through chance circumstance, they're able to use this to their advantage instead of it hurting him worse like Gannon thought it would have. So I, I just, the story here just keeps accelerating and then the art is just stellar. So, you know, you got a win-win here. Yeah, I do... It does feel like there's a lot of characters thrown in here from the game in a sense because they have a tendency very quickly to mention it. And it's one of those things where it's kind of like you see in – and it happens a lot in comic books or in episodic cartoon series and stuff like that where you know you don't want to just assume that everybody's been reading the entire time or watching the entire time. So it might be sort of one of those uh, – you know, a, a character may not usually call another character by their name. But they'll make sure that they do it in one or two lines early in the episode to make sure that you know who the character is, that sort of thing. There are several instances in here um, where they'll mention a character uh, like a, thanks, Zaydra. That's it, Hiddenbeck's back to the pit. And they'll, they'll boldface the name. And it's kind of one of those, okay, yeah, they're name dropping so that you feel like, oh, look, this is the one from the game. But aside from their way in some cases of mentioning character names, I gotta say, it felt like more than most of the times where we see characters uh, pop in that are supposed to connect to something else that was out previously that we're supposed to get excited about, it at least felt like the way things played in here, yeah, it was a lot at once, but it felt very organic. It felt natural to the story that, okay, they're on Terrace, they're with the Hidden Becks, of course we're going to meet Bredgick before the falling out, of course we're going to meet Gadonthek, of course we're going to meet Mission and her older brother. In fact, the only thing that really threw me, and I guess this is something that that you and I talked about before we were... Um, recording the episode was how young Mission Vow is. But then you take a second step back and realize, well, man, I mean, this is still seven years prior to the Knights of the Old Republic video game. So yeah, it would make sense that Mission is still young. She isn't with Zalbar at this point and everything. Um, just kind of that sense of, huh, you know, it, it gives you a sense of the place of this series in relation to Knights of the Old Republic. Again, I think I mentioned this earlier without feeling as though they've dropped Zane's story to make room for all this tie in stuff. More so that it just feels like, well, it's just part of the story. I would argue that someone who has never played the Knights of the Old Republic video game, in fact, maybe even knows nothing about it, may feel a little bombarded by the number of new names showing up in here. But I don't think they would feel lost. I don't think they would feel like they were missing something by not knowing that these are characters that show up later in the game. And in that sense, that's, that's where Star Wars works, I think, at its best in a lot of ways. Star Wars... Uh, the, the joke was back in the day when Vector was coming, and that is what we're working our way towards, was that Star Wars doesn't do crossovers. Well, yeah, but that's because Star Wars is kind of a shared universe, and characters and situations are crossing over and influencing each other all the time. Because it's all one continuity and such. Uh, yeah, a character might make a cameo appearance that mainly features in some other story, but we don't think of it as a crossover like we do in a lot of comic series, because that's just what Star Wars does. Um... 
And that's kind of what we've got here. It's not a crossover per se, or a cross through, the way they'll refer to Vector. Instead, it's just sort of one of those, naturally, this is where it fits, so there they go. You know, it's not like trying to shoehorn Han and Chewie into Death Troopers or something. It's, they're there, that's where those characters would be at this point in time, based on what we know from the game, so there they are. It works very, very well. Yeah, you can't go wrong with the way it works. It plays, and it plays well. Uh, you know, the art in the next one especially, I, I just I love the little details. You know, when you get the outside of the city and stuff like that, the little flags, the Mandalorians, uh, the Neo-Crusaders, all those little things, because those were also referenced in the game as well. You know, you'd have just little things with them wearing that armor. That's why I was always intrigued as to how that tied in. And this does a good job of explaining the Mandalorian side of things and, and how it's affecting the Republic, the Jedi, and, you know, the galaxy as a whole. Although I, I would imagine, thinking back to the video game, I mean, the game was originally released on Xbox. Uh, the original Xbox. Uh, I would call it the Xbox One, but I guess we can't call it that anymore now because that's what the new one's called. Um, but I got to wonder how much of the Neo Crusader armor was designed as a way of setting them apart and how much of it was, wow, we're going to have a bunch of Mandalorians. We don't really want to have different character models for every single individual one, so let's make the Mandalorians all look the same. Kind of like whenever they were doing the death... Uh, Death Watch for the Clone Wars cartoon series, I would bet money that part of their goal in doing the Death Watch and making them all look the same in their armor um, was partly because that way they didn't have to make a whole bunch of different character models and wind up using a bunch of resources and money for that episode. They could yeah. just throw the same ones in over and over again. But that brings, us, that. that brings us to Knights of Suffering Part 2. We pick up with an interesting scene, at least visually, of Cassus Fett working out the details, kind of looking over everything, we wind up realizing as we look at the background of that, and we'll be told later in the issue, that this is actually the top of the Jedi Tower on Terrace. This is the scene of the deaths of all of those Padawans. Now it's the base for the Mandalorians on Terrace. We go back down below, we pick up exactly where the last issue left off. Uh, one of the Mumo brothers is about to shoot Shell because the... Zane's a, got a bounty on his head, and now he wants it, so Shell, don't kill him. Uh, Ranate winds up leaping in, stops the Mumo from blasting Shell, but that's pretty much as far as it goes, because the two sides want to be able to have their meeting. They're basically saying, like, look, you know, the Hidden Becks are protecting Zane, and the meeting is supposed to be a peaceful one. So no matter how much he says, you know, he's the Padawan killer, Cinder, and she just constantly keeps saying, he's a killer, he's a killer, he's a killer. They're like, yeah, but, you know, he could be a good ally at this point, and we need the cooperation of these two groups, so stow it for a little while, you crazy Jedi woman. Um, we meet Senator Gravis uh, as the leader of the Resistance at this point, the man that, you know, Griff was supposed to go find. We find out that, yes, it was the blast to that big old suitcase thing that saved Zane's life. It was not a stun blast. It was just... it. Hit the case first. We find out about the background of uh, Jervo, the one who sent Griff to find Garavis and Garavis. And then they activate a transmitter, which is able to get through the Mandalorian jamming, which is a big deal here. So I guess it's probably why this part of the storyline was there in the first place, because they're going to need this transmitter here. Only to wind up finding that, oh, wait a second. It's actually that Jervo wants Garavis taken out not wants to find his old friend who's gone missing. Uh, and he's got a bomb. The actual the suitcase that has the transmitter on it is actually a bomb, not just a transmitter, only the blast that Shell took, uh, that wanted, she shot at Zane that hit the suitcase, 
has messed up the suitcase. The bomb still works, but not in its current state. They're going to have to fix it. So Jervo is just kind of left sitting there going, oh, well, crap, and doesn't get what he wants. But it leaves the resistance with the bomb and with a transmitter that can actually break through the jamming, uh, which is a helpful thing as the story moves along. And then for a moment, we jump up into space back to the Willowaw where Roland and Alec and Jeriel are just kind of hanging out, waiting to see what happens below. And I got to say, this is one of those why is this scene here kind of feelings to me back when it was originally released. But it makes perfect sense now in the grand scheme of things because we have Roland slash Demigol basically saying, yeah, I got just the thing to help, uh, you know, occupy your mind while, you know, while you're waiting. We don't know what that is just yet. We move back down and see where Zane is uh, uh, sitting around, basically just waiting to see what's going to happen in the Terra stronghold. Um, he tries to talk to Shell. Shell reveals that not only does she blame Zane, but you know she got this money. She thinks it came from the Jedi Order. She got this money, and she was going to use that money to put a bounty on his head to take him out for killing her brother. And Zane's like, wait a second. You know, he was the one who sent the money in the first place. We saw that a couple arcs back, and you put a bounty on me? You know, he's, he's kind of shocked at the whole idea. Only they start to get through to her, at least they're trying to get through to her, this idea that, you know, this was not the guy that killed your brother. That's not the way that it wound up going down. And there's a great moment where I say, you know, then who killed my brother? I did, says Renate as she walks in. But then she says, you know, that's what he's made himself believe. That's his delusion, essentially. Renate kind of confessing without confessing. And again, you get sort of a brief confrontation there, a brief uh, a verbal sparring match between Zane and Renate. But either way... You know, it's, it's still a matter of what does Shell believe. That's the key crux of how this is all going to have to play out. Either Shell's going to believe Zane, someone she cared about who she has blamed all this time for killing her brother, or she's going to have to believe Ranate, who in theory is supposed to be a Jedi Master, very trustworthy. Um, but you get those... We know that Zane, of course, didn't do it, so we, we see the manipulation in the things that Ranate is saying, although she as a character would not. That briefly jumps us back to the Mumo Willowaw, where we find that what Roland suggested that she do is actually spar with Alec. We will learn later, much, much later, and in that secret journal of Dr. Demigal, that this was a test to see the abilities of Jeriel. Um, all we know is that, oh, it's like, it's like Roland sitting back and saying, hey, why don't you just spar to work out some of your frustrations and such. And as those two, that is Alec and Jeriel, converse a little bit, shows that Alec has a romantic interest in Jeriel. Um, she's not willing to pursue it right now because of all the stuff that, you know, happened with her trust with the Daska. And Alec has a little, you know, is it not now or is it just not me? And we see Roland watching this. And again, it gives us that overtone to think that this is all a romantic thing for Roland slash Demigo, only we will find eventually that it's not. He has much greater reasons for trying to keep uh, his eye on her. We end the issue not with the big climactic battle, but instead with a whole lot more talking. But it's talking as far as battle plans go. They're setting up a plan that will send Zane and Ranate and Shell into the old Jedi Tower to find a way to get to Casa Svet so they can set up some explosives and blow up the command center, taking Casa Svet, hopefully, with it for the Resistance. Um, and we end with, again, Ranate pushing and pushing and pushing Shell to take out Zane, basically saying, you know that that uh, 
crystal that you got that you're wearing around your neck. That's the lightsaber crystal from your brother's lightsaber. But the actual lightsaber itself without the crystal in it is still sitting there. I'll tell you where to find it. I'll tell you how to reinstall the crystal, which apparently is not that big of a deal back then. And you can use that to take out your brother's killer. Um, again, meaning Zane. So we've got this interesting sense here that you know, Shell is wavering. Yeah, there's a, there's the mission to take out Cass's Fett, um, but that seems like that is it's, it's one of those great again a, a lot of the good wartime storytelling always does, whether it's Star Wars or anything else. There's a big conflict, there's a big mission to be done, but what really matters are the personal stories that are going on. What really is the crux of this is Ronate, Shell, and Zane. Um, another chock full issue. Yeah, I love the the pressing from Rana as she just keeps making Shell, you know, more and more convinced. And the fact that, you know, all that Zane has is the facts. Like when she comes in and says, you know, well, I did. Well, at least that's what he has himself believing. And he's like, well, no, you couldn't have done it. You weren't close enough. It was Quinlan that did it. And, you know, that the whole way that they're just twisting it for Shell, you're just like, which way is she going to go here? It, it's great the way they deliver it. And that the next issue especially, they just keep advancing things to the point where you're just salivating. This was a very, very fun arc. Yeah, and again, this is all set up in a sense here because it's the next issue that really wraps things up. And understand, again, this is a major issue not just because of it's the end of Nights of Suffering. This is also the end of the entire Days Nights arc and sort of the first stage, if you want to call it that, of Knights of the Old Republic, because this is what's going to set us up for Vector. Uh, after this point, the next stage is Vector, and after that is a, a race towards the Vindication moment, uh, the Vindication arc, that's going to wind up sending this series off on its completely different path, where old story threads get picked up, moving us into the back half of the series. Uh, issue number three is an interesting one, in that it starts with a flashback to the Dre family estate, where we were back in that interlude back during Flashpoint, the going back and, you know, kind of seeing the background of the Dre family and everything. And it turns out, 25 years ago, that Ronate happened to have witnessed a prophecy that Krinda, that is uh, Lucian's mom, the leader of this group, supposedly, gave. And she's actually giving it in front of Hazen. Um, we saw Hazen a while back. We'll see a lot more of Hazen later. He's one of those sort of blink and you'll miss it kind of guys here because he's just sitting there quietly as she gives the prophecy. But he's standing right there. And she gives this new prophecy. It'll come to be known as the Prophecy of the Five. And then in the time of tribulation to come, there will be five. One for the darkness and one for the light. Another from the darkness stands in the light, while one from the light stands in the darkness. The last one stands apart from all, which eventually will be explained. And between them, between them, all that has been built will fall, supposedly meaning the entire Republic, though we will find that that's not exactly what it was referring to. You know, a prophecy which misread or misunderstood could have been. That, of course, is a flashback going through the mind of Ronate as they begin their mission. Uh, Zane and Shell are going to work their way inside the tower from the outside while Ronate works her way through the systems underneath and such so they can unlock a thing inside and actually let her in once they themselves get inside. We have more banter between the supposed Mandalorian Zane and his supposed saboteur prisoner, Shell, as they're working their way inside. Um, he's doing a pretty good job of convincing her that no, this is, you know, what you believe is not what is actually true. He's telling her about the so-called Cabal in the Jedi Order, which we'll eventually know of as the Jedi Covenant. Um, he's confronting her about, you know, why didn't you believe in me? 
Um, she confronts him about him not wanting a relationship, and yet he wanted the relationship. It's just that he was going to be a Jedi. He was going to have to leave, etc., etc. And their their bickering is picked up by a couple of Mandalorians who are like, "What's going on here?" At which point she simply just grabs him and kisses him and leave him alone. He's a uh, recruiting, uh, which is you know it, it's it's a, that sort of moment you would expect in just about any type of of uh, you know kind of romantic comedy type thing. Oh, they're about to be caught. Now they're going to kiss. Only the immediate follow up is not for the person who got kissed to slap the kisser, which you would expect perhaps in a comedy. But instead, Shell stops kissing him and knees him in the gonads, essentially. Uh, you know, ow, blasted armor as she rubs her knee. <laughs> Not armored enough as he <laughs> nurses his uh, damaged uh, jewels there. Uh, yeah, but they... You wonder if that might be like a little tongue-in-cheek reference to Karen Travis, because it seems like that's how her clans all grew. All the clones would go find a woman, and the next thing you know, hey, we got a family. Exactly. So they make their way inside, and there's a great moment in there where they've gone inside, they've unlocked the thing inside the storage level um, so that Ronate can get in, and Shell is actually picking up the lightsaber like she was told to do. But while they're talking, when she has that moment where she could take it, put in the crystal, and kill him, um, Zane is actually talking about Shad, her brother, and how he misses him, and he actually has tears in his eyes as he's saying it, and that's sort of, it's the moment that gets Shell to realize Zane couldn't have done this. Now, Zane is just as, as remorseful about losing Shad as she was. And as he moves off for the next part of their mission, Ramate is let in, but is not willing to let it go. So, you, know, you know, he was talking about my brother. I had the chance. I didn't take it. You know, the dark side lies at Shell. Um, and it leaves Shell kind of, you know, you can tell that she has switched sides, in a sense, when it comes to Ramate versus Zane. Zane, for his part, still dresses a Mandalorian, makes his way up to what's supposed to be the command center, a little Jedi Council looking room, only, oh, Cassus Fett is already gone. They're not going to get their chance to take him out. While he's in there talking to the Mandalorian, who's just kind of picking through the pieces of what's left and packing up what's left, in comes Ronate, sees them talking, and says, you know, Mandalorians and the Sith. She is going bat guano nuts at this point. We know this from the last arc in which Lucian actually tells Zane about how Ranate is having nightmares, having all kinds of issues uh, since their previous encounter. And no matter what it is that Zane is saying about how, you know, the Mandalorian just said that Cassus Fett is attacking the base of the Resistance. We need to go save them. He's not here. That she's just, you know, she's going nuts and she's ready to just kill him and take him out. Uh, you know, she's had not only the vision that she had with the group, but she also heard about that prophecy of the five. She knows that everything's going to be brought down because of someone like Zane, and she's not willing to let it go. She is attacking him. During that, uh, Griff basically is trying to do what they're supposed to do. That is, be there with Ganonthek, be there with the Hidden Becks to get them out of the tower when their mission is over with, but with the attack on the base... Basically, all the hidden backs start heading back there, but Gedontek is willing to stay with Griff to try to save Zane and Shell and possibly Ronatane and just get them the heck out of there um, to complete that part of the mission, which he he basically attributes to Griff basically growing a conscience. You know, man, you know, you were, you were much better when you were completely self-serving. Now, all of a sudden, you want to be <laughs> altruistic and save these guys. You can see how, how Griff is being changed by his relationship with Zane, uh, but inside... We got a cool lightsaber duel going on between the heavily overmatched Zane uh, and the extremely powerful Ranate, but she's very much out of control. Uh, he winds up using his jetpack to escape at one point, 
and it gets us to the point where the, the little, um, the window or whatever you want to call it, the ceiling that's made of glass or transparent steel or whatever is getting shattered in the process. And she winds up damaging his jetpack and is about to come at him with two lightsabers. The jetpack is damaged. He's dropped his lightsaber moments previous. Uh, all he's got is a blaster. She now has her lightsaber and his. Is about to deliver uh, basically two blows that would kill him, though he is putting up the, you know, the gauntlet. So you got to wonder if the gauntlet might have saved him. But no matter, here comes Shell with Shad's lightsaber. And basically, she gets justice. She has heard what Ranate has been saying. You know, uh, Lucian always said, I took more than my share at dinner. I've killed more than my share of Padawans now, basically killing Zane too. I think he'll forgive me. This has proven to show that not only was Zane right emotionally from what she got earlier, but Zane was telling the truth. It was actually the Masters who did this. She stabs Ranate, has a moment to basically fall into Zane's arms. You know, Zane, you didn't do it. But the trouble is not over yet. As Gadonthek and, and Griff fly over to rescue them, they're heading out on basically like a tow cable, more or less, um, that's been dropped inside. It's, it's carrying a lot of weight, so it's kind of tough to get out of there. But Zane and Shell grab onto this tow cable to get pulled out, and Ranate leaps after them. She doesn't catch the tow cable. She winds up on the roof with that broken glass or broken transparent steel or whatever you want to call it. And Zane, again, showing that Zane essentially is more of a Jedi than Ranate or any of the Jedi Covenant actually is in their actions. Um, and he even says at one point a thing about how, you know, maybe if people don't realize their actions are wrong, it confuses the Force in a sense, that they don't sense the darkness, or you wouldn't sense darkness in them because they think they're doing what is right. It makes you wonder how the... Or it makes you, you realize how the Jedi might have not seen some of the darkness in Anakin Skywalker, for instance, in Revenge of the Sith. He's doing what he's doing supposedly for what he thinks is the right reasons until he officially becomes a Sith and starts becoming a child killer and such. But Zane's coming back. Zane is willing to try to get her out of there. The Mandalorians are coming. Let me save you, essentially. And this realization of hers, it looks like she's actually realizing, you would save me? Okay, you know, let me come with you. She's looking like she's going to accept his help. Except as she's standing there... Her hand has been caught inside some of the broken glass. She can't leave because her hand is stuck. She pulls her lightsaber with her other hand. She's trying, it looks like, from the way I'm interpreting this, she's not trying to attack anybody. She's trying to slice her own hand off to escape. But as she lifts up with the lightsaber, Griff sees her doing that and triggers the explosives that they set inside the building. And as the building is about to come crashing down, she simply looks up to Zane and says, Tell Krinda... Ding, 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 ding. Tell Krinda, I'm sorry. The building collapses. Ranate dies. And that is sensed by Kanilla and Lucian back uh, at the Jedi Covenant base and such. Um, but as they're escaping on the tow cable, I mean, we really end in the middle of the action. They're just being pulled along by the tow cable as we fade out to the end of the issue. Just, you know, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry, Zane. I'm so sorry you lost your chance, right? The whole idea of trying to get Ranate to confess to what was done. But he, he says what essentially sets up Vector. Maybe. But maybe I got something else. I got a name. Krinda. And that is what's going to propel the search for answers that will take him through Vector eventually into Exalted and such, and then finally towards Vindication in Vindication. Um, this was a great issue. Again, lots of stuff going on. 
Very personal story amid the crazy happenings in the backdrop. And again, another of these game changers. Um, they always talked about how Vector was supposed to be a game changer for all these series. But Knights of the Old Republic has a tendency to have its own game changers from time to time. It's sort of like the way that John Jackson Miller set it up almost feels as though each story arc had its own game-changing moment, large or small. Which I guess is what it's supposed to be if you're doing an ongoing comic series. You should have each arc have meaning to everything else, as opposed to the way the old Marvel stuff used to do it and some of the more modern Star Wars stuff sometimes tends to do. Yeah, it was a powerful conclusion to a powerful arc. I mean, you know, art aside from the first half, once Weaver got in there, everything came together. The story was powerful. It was driven by the character moments. And each one has built off of the earlier ones to get to this point where you have this beautiful crescendo of things wrapping up and setting forth the next stage. Uh, you know, I, I can't say enough about this series. This arc especially is one of my favorites. If you haven't had a chance to go read it, you definitely should. It's worth the time and the investment to get the entire series and go through and take this ride. It's a lot of fun. Now, we're just about out of time here. Uh, this has been kind of a chock-full episode. Uh, very quickly, our contests are still going at this point. Um, our first contest winner has been drawn. Uh, the winner of the copy of X-Wing Mercy Kill, the hardback was Drew Nick. So congratulations to Drew. Uh, that'll be going out to you in the very, very near future here, if it isn't out already. Our contests are still going for Crucible, for uh, Greater Good and so on, but bear in mind that as we go along, you know, these episodes are being released a little while after they are being recorded, so keep an eye out on the Facebook page to make sure that you know exactly which deadlines go with each. Uh, in this case, uh, we now have a new contest going. Our new contest is for something big. This is the Equals and Opposites comic pack. I have two of these to give away as part of this contest. We're going to do the first one here. Basically what you get is the Equals and Opposites comic pack. It is a copy of my story by itself as a comic released through Hasbro in this case with two action figures, Kyle Katarn and the Yuzhan Vong Warrior. Now this is in its original packaging, a little bit of a bending to some of the corners of the card because these have been sitting around for quite a while. Even my copies that I keep for myself still have a little bit of bending on the card and such. Um, very hard to find at times, especially still closed up at this point. If you win this one, I would be happy to either sign the plastic cover to the thing if you want me to sign it that way, or if you want me to actually very carefully split it open, just barely pull the comic out and either sign the cover of that or sign the inside of that as a case may be, because this is that story that I wrote for Star Wars Tales. If you want to enter to win a copy of the Equals and Opposites comic pack, here's what you do. Send us an email, swbeyondfilms at starwarsfanworks.com. In the subject line, put equals and opposites one. Make sure you do put one because we are going to give away two of these, two separate sets of entries to go along here. And in the body of that email, tell us your name, your mailing address, and do you need you to do one other thing. Tell me if you want it to be signed. If so, do you want it personalized? And where would you like it signed? On the packaging, still closed up, or open it up, take out the comic, sign the cover, or sign the inside. If you forget that part of it, I'll just contact you afterwards. Just make sure your mailing address is in there. But it'd be nice to know that ahead of time so I can get this ready and send it out to you as quickly as possible. As for the deadline, uh, our last contest had a deadline of January 17th. So in this case, uh, the deadline to enter this contest will be January 24th, one week later. So get those entries in. You can follow the progress through the Facebook page. Just make sure that you get those in by January 24th if you want to be in the running for that one. Again, equals and opposites. One is the subject line, mailing address, and name inside the body of the email. 
Now, unfortunately, we just kind of ran out of time today. We weren't going to be able to cover the covers like we originally hoped. Uh, that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. Thank you for hanging around with us as we ponder on sharing in the fandom. And remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online at the Star Wars Report website, www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes are also available on Zoom, Stitcher, and on iTunes, which we encourage you to leave us a review while you're at it. You can also find links to our episodes on both our Twitter and our Facebook page at SWBeyondFilms, or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in the search bar. But no matter how you get there, be sure to like our page. Our Facebook page is the best way to interact with us. Our own home one, if you will. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, we love interacting with you fellow fans. So if you have any Star Wars and or EU questions, or you just want to comment about a past episode, fire off. You can always email us directly at swbeyondfilms at starwarsfanworks.com. So, for Star Wars Beyond the Films, this has been Mark and Whistler. And Nathan, the summarizer extraordinaire, apparently. Woo! <laughs> Saying thanks for listening, and may the force be with you. And don't quote us the odds that everything will turn out well as we move towards Vector. What are the odds that we're going to get another comic series that goes 50 issues? Not likely. Just go straight to the so for Star Wars Beyond the Film. Yeah. So for Star Wars Beyond the Film.